As diversity and inclusion initiatives mature, evaluation and improvement are prioritized. In this episode, we discuss how one such program has evolved. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guests today are Melina Ivanchikova and Matt Wallet. Matt is the founding executive director at Cornell University's Center for Teaching Innovation. Melina is the associate director for inclusive teaching in the center. Welcome back. Thank you. Delighted to join you again. It's great to be here. It's good to talk to you again. This is overdue. We had planned to talk to you after we had taken a group of people through the inclusive teaching MOOC that we'll be talking about. And then this pandemic intervened and we didn't quite get to that. So I'm glad we're finally able to schedule this. Our teas today are... I'm personally not drinking anything right now, but if I was, I'd be drinking something in the family of Earl Grey. I like a black tea. It's definitely the Earl Grey time of day. I'm just drinking water because of the heat. 90 degree weather. (laughs) I want to hold up a tea that Matt occasionally brings for us at staff meetings, which is a gift. You put this little bulb in a hot water and it opens up slowly into a flower and has this beautiful aroma to it. And everybody delights in it. So it just causes this moment of group joy. But Matt will know what the name of that tea is. It's a green tea. I think it's sometimes referred to as a lotus bloom. So thank you, Melina. That's really kind of you to mention that. And I have a seasonally inappropriate Christmas tea. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds good. I was looking for a little spice. Spices are cooling. I also have a seasonally inappropriate spring cherry green tea. They both sound delicious. I wish we could be in the same room together. And tea testing. We exactly. <laughs> have all the teas. In our conference room, we have hundreds of teas. If you're ever up on campus, we're happy to share some with you. In an earlier podcast, we talked to you about the teaching and learning in the diverse classroom MOOC that you were developing at Cornell and were to release shortly. We had agreed to discuss this after we had a cohort of our faculty go through it, but we had a few other things intervene, including a global pandemic, and we've actually had three cohorts go through it. And we'd like to talk to you about the MOOC and in general, how it's gone and where it's going. But because it's been a while since we talked about this, could you provide a little bit of background on the origin of this MOOC? In 2017, when the Center for Teaching Innovation was first formed, we were trying to discern strategic projects that were of interest to ourselves, but also serve the common good, sort of attach themselves to initiatives that were campus-wide. And Melina and I gained the support of senior academic leaders to do a course for faculty on campus related to teaching inclusively. So initially, the genesis of this idea was a professional faculty development experience on campus. And then the more that we got sort of embedded in the project, it became really clear to us that it could also answer another strong 
desire that we had, which was to contribute something broader, something that other institutions could take advantage of as well. So that's where the genesis of the idea moved from an on-campus resource to something on a platform like edX. They've been great colleagues and really wonderful to work with. But it galvanized us, I think, to think more broadly, but also more specifically. And by more broadly, I mean, we were trying to think about what in the U.S. context stands up to an international conversation around social justice, equity, and diversity? And what is uniquely American? And also, for us, what was uniquely Cornell's context versus what might have resonance more broadly? So the process of putting it together was really driven locally, but our eye was always on trying to deliver something that might be of use to our colleagues more broadly. Melina, does that resonate for you? Yes. I think we were doing our best at the beginning, floating ideas, and pleasantly surprised when we got the confirmation from our senior leadership. They really thought it would be a good way and a different way to provide an opportunity for people to engage with this kind of a course, either in groups together or asynchronously by oneself to have a private learning experience. But what appealed was an online asynchronous experience that wasn't going to be hours and hours of time. Early on, we had a lot of conversations about how to keep this to four or five weeks, something reasonable (laughs) for professional, busy people. The length was one of the things I really appreciated about it in that it was a really nice, concise, but very specific and detailed all at the same time. So it really felt manageable. I know we had three cohorts go through on our campus and I was unable to follow along during the first ones, but I was following along right when the pandemic hit and found taking the course at that particular moment really poignant. This was our experience on our campus too. I'll be just very honest with you and say, I felt honor would be served if Melina and I offered the course one time on campus and we had anybody take it. It's sort of like we delivered. And after that, it's sort of up to the universe to find footing. But we have consistently had really excellent participation on campus. And I'll let Melina speak more to the facts and figures. But even this spring, we're literally just now completing a spring version of it on campus. And we've had a really lovely distribution between faculty, graduate students, and staff, almost a third, a third, a third again. And the interest doesn't seem to be diminishing. And so, Rebecca, I can't wait to hear more from you and John about what your experiences were with your cohorts, because part of the joy of doing this is hearing back from campuses. Did it help? Did it galvanize and help facilitate some conversations that were context specific? And we really hope that we could provide the general introductory sort of framework, provide some useful resources in terms of exercises, but then really trust the process would unfold at a campus level in the way that it needed to. So that's not a rhetorical question. I would love to hear more. To be honest, I was really hoping we could turn the conversation there, too. I really wanted to hear how your local learning communities went. Three is a significant number. It's fantastic. Yeah, that's serious dedication and a sign of positive response. So we'd love to hear more. Each time, I think we had between 30 and 45 people attending, somewhere in that range. They were mostly faculty, but we did have a few administrators. And one thing that was really effective is one of the faculty members in the third iteration of that brought in a couple of her students. And that made it much more powerful because while the stories that are provided in the MOOC and the videos from Cornell students and Cornell faculty are very well done and very moving, when a student gets up and talks about their own experiences and the challenges they faced as a local example of that, it's even more powerful. A number of people signed up for it on their own, but most of the people actually met 
every week where we provided three or four times to let people come in at times that were convenient. We'd watch most or all of the videos and then we'd discuss each of them. Sometimes we didn't get through all of them because the discussions went for a long time. Other times we were able to get through most of them and then people did the rest of the work on their own outside. But the discussions were really effective and having people talk about it in person worked really well. And I think it helped ensure that everyone finished the MOOC or that nearly everyone finished the MOOC. I know we had some people who didn't do all the written work, but they at least attended most or all of the sessions. And for us, at least, I think having the weekly meeting served as a nice commitment device, which tended to help maintain persistence. And it worked really well. And people have been asking about when we're going to take another cohort through. And we'll be planning to do that this fall. I think overall it was a tremendous success on campus. And we did have a few administrators attend, but not quite as many as you received. And we did have some staff members too, but it was mostly faculty. I think it was a really nice compliment to some of the other work that we had already started doing, but just didn't have the capacity to roll out the equivalent of that course on our own. And so it was really, really helpful to us. We had done a couple of reading groups related to racism previous to that. We have a really robust accessibility program on our campus and have been doing a lot of professional development around disability and accessibility. And so leveling up to inclusive pedagogy is really where we wanted to be going. And this was a really nice structured way for us to get there. So we've been really thrilled with how many people have participated. And I think it really informed a lot of the work that folks did over the past year during the pandemic as well. People became really aware of some of the inequities that weren't as visible previously. Thank you so much for sharing some details. It's delightful, even just to picture briefly how you chose to facilitate those and the responses. I love the searching for authentic stories from your own campus with having students present. That seems really exciting. This might be a good time to mention a couple of things. One is that we made the decision in January to move from an instructor-paced model to having it be a self-paced model, which means now that the course is open all year round. And the reason for that was to give campuses and facilitators more flexibility to run the course on the schedule that worked for them, because we kept trying to guess and get it right, but sometimes we'd get it right in the middle of the busiest part of the semester, which some people loved, but other people, it didn't work so well for them. So I think that's a good decision. We started to wonder more about how are people facilitating the course we're doing and trying to reach out to them and have conversations or looking for a little bit of feedback, even informally, just like this, to see how things were going. So we heard similar things from a few others, like they got inspired to look for the stories that were from their own community and their own students. And there's many places to look for stories like that, the student newspapers, conversations with faculty, as you described. I love your strategy of a faculty member bringing their own students in, that there's no substitute for that. So I love that. That's a great idea. Can I say too, Melina, this is a little bit of the inside part, but it was a big moment for us to let go of the instructor-led version of the MOOC. And partially, we just needed to have a reassurance that we had done a good job, that the quality of the work was substantial enough that it could just sort of go forth. And we were always confident that our colleagues could facilitate it well. I think, John and Rebecca, it's such a compliment to your on-campus facilitation because we know the number one thing here is not the advertising, it's word of mouth. And if colleagues are saying to their friends and associates, oh yeah, it wasn't a terrible thing, you know, it was an okay use of my time, then we know that's so much more persuasive than any kind of blitz you could do through email or anything else. And if you're continuing to get 
this larger group, and that's a significant proportion of your faculty continuing to find this a good use of their time, then Melina, we can take a deep breath now. We can sort of say, it's okay. We let our baby go out into the world and it's going to be okay. But last year was a very unique year. So we had a giant boost. As soon as the pandemic started, people enrolled in the course. We decided to run the course again earlier than we had planned in response to the street movement and fighting for racial justice. And we had a giant leap in attendance here at Cornell as a result of that. And then we ran another learning community series in October. And then Matt mentioned we ran one in the spring too. We do have some fun things to report out on in terms of patterns of what people are saying about what they're learning. We have a pre-post survey that gives us a sense of how people feel at the beginning and then matches to their experience of how they feel at the end. And so I was surprised by the things that floated to the top. So I can share what the top four things were. The number one thing that they moved the most on. So this was things that they collectively they moved the most on. So the first one was, I'm aware of campus resources to support colleagues and students in sustaining inclusive learning environments. I don't know why that one surprised me, but I think even though our course is sort of the Cornell example, most college campuses in the U.S. have all sorts of supports and offices in place. And so this might have been the place where they finally got to hear the list of all the different offices that support student learning and accessibility. The second one was, I feel prepared to address controversial comments that may arise in class. That was one worry that we had initially was that an asynchronous online course would never take the place of a face-to-face learning experience. This shows me and Matt's bias also because we've been strongly face-to-face instructors for most of our teaching careers. So we had to learn ourselves how to be online instructors and what that meant, how to have a stronger presence in the course itself. So between our pilot version of the course and the second iteration, we added more videos of ourselves. And so we were very gratified by seeing this number. People feel more confident around this. The other one is I'm informed about specific strategies for creating more inclusive classrooms. And the fourth one is I feel confident I can evaluate my course structure and materials for inclusivity. So that's where things are trending very strongly. We're hoping to publish some findings pretty soon about that. And then the other response that we hear over and over again is how moving the videos were, which to me is personally gratifying because from the moment when I was a little girl, my father used to read to me every night before bed and tried and true. I do the same with my kids. Stories were just my way into learning about the world and continue to be so. So it's just the thing that moves us, our emotions. It's the thing that makes us open to caring about systemic change because the door opens to us through individuals' stories and experiences of discrimination. When we share in community about our own experiences of discrimination and bias and even our own mistakes that we've made with others, I think that kind of learning is so powerful. And so I think that we were able, (laughs) through the videos, to lift that experience of storytelling. The narratives in there are extremely powerful, and people reacted really positively to them. Especially because there was such a wide variety of disciplines reflected, which I think is really important and sometimes can be challenging for an individual campus to do a small workshop series or something and get that broad of representation at each little event. You might have representation throughout a whole semester or a whole academic year, but maybe difficult to have that much representation in a single sitting of something. Absolutely. Even like the tried and true method of a panel, it doesn't really necessarily lend itself for people to really do a deep dive or really share. The other thing that I've come to appreciate even more deeply is the power of getting out ahead of a crisis and providing an opportunity for folks to just talk, to grapple with ideas 
provide them some frameworks. They may not like them all. Like Melina and I had this very interesting conversation with one of our colleagues who was going through the reading list saying, too aggressive, not deep enough. And it was just sort of a typical faculty critique of the reading list. I was like, super engaged. I love it. Absolutely. Bring it on. I'm not changing any of the readings, but I loved having that conversation because I thought that's someone who's really gotten engaged and is trying to figure out how to apply this in the context of her work and her discipline and her students. And for me, that's the best that it gets. But it is this capacity building or resilience building. So all of your cohorts, all those folks who sat together, that's a transformative human experience. It sort of harkens back to the sitting around the campfire. They've had this moment together that I don't know when or how, but I'm positive it will do good. It will do good for the campus and it will do good for students. And nothing else like Melina was suggesting. It gives you a small cohort of colleagues to rely on and to say, I'm not really sure about this. What do you think? What would you do in this situation? And the other thing that we came to learn, which I have to say, Melina and I were both very slow to want to do anything online, but we also were very suspicious of lurkers. And we were sort of like, well, where are these people? They've signed up, but they're here, but they're not posting anything in the discussion board. But I've now come to really embrace lurking as a form of learning. I'm not dismissive of it at all. I think some people want to be in the conversation. They're taking it in. They're absorbing it. But they just don't feel like they have a lot they want to say yet. Or someone else has already said it. Or they're waiting to see what other people have to say. So Melina and I have a number of times come back around to this conversation about what does it mean to really be engaged? And I think our growth edge, our learning has been to really expand that definition of what it means to be engaged. So if you sign up for the course, but you never log in, that's not engaged. That's wishful thinking. But if you sign in and you tap through any of the videos or even look at the resources, like I had to smile when you said your colleague maybe didn't do all of the writing, not a problem. What we're finding is that people will circle back around. Like we've had a number of people have taken the course twice. I think that's a phenomenal commitment on a faculty member's part. I mean, just given how stretched everybody is for time. Yeah, I have a faculty member who emailed me today saying, I can't wait for next spring when we'll offer learning community opportunities again so that I can take it for the third time. (laughs) And she was trying to remember where she could find the references to active learning strategies. So I'm like, those are in module three. (laughs) Oh, great. That's what she was really looking for. There was a new faculty member at the University of Pittsburgh who contacted me what seems like ages ago. It, It turns out it was only last December, but it feels like three years ago. And she wanted to talk about how we made the videos because she wanted to make videos on her own campus. And so that was really inspiring. And she recently reached out again, and I met with her this morning. And she's gotten all her academic leadership on board. They're going to make their own asynchronous class. They have a video team in place to make it. This is inspiring because our action plans are always inspiring. And sometimes a person's action plan is, this is a draft of my syllabus diversity statement, or this is my plan for TAs or graduate students. Sometimes they're thinking of a plan that will be years down the road, or they're thinking how to bring in diversified speakers. All of those are strategies that we took all of the action plans that people had submitted locally and made word clouds with them. And the word student is the thing. It just stood out as the most giant thing. And so I thought, wow, this is telling me that student-centered learning strategies are the thing that people are walking away with was a litmus test. But this person took it over and above. And so I just thought it's a ripple effect. It's her project. 
and she'll go on to inspire others. We've had people come back and say, can you do one for librarians? Can you do one for teaching graduate students? Can you do one for the law profession or medical profession? She's making one that's anchored in the medical profession. So I just celebrated her and said, I hope you can make it a MOOC, not just for your own campus. Maybe the same thing will happen to them that happened to us, which is they'll start small and then dive out. It's amazing how projects sometimes balloon like that. (laughs) Like, well, that's not quite what I had in mind. And now I have this giant thing that I'm doing. We're glad that it happened. (laughs) I wanted to comment a little bit, Matt, on lurking. As a lurker, I thought I might just confess, like, what lurkers do. So I followed along twice. The first time I was an active lurker, in part because I was doing a lot of self-reflection and I didn't want to communicate with other people while I was processing. And to have some of that time and space to process for myself and how that related to other diversity, equity, inclusion, things that I was engaged in and so that I could then articulate to other people how that fit in with what I was doing because I needed that time and space to process. And then the second time I was an active, engaged participant. But I definitely lurked the first time, and it was really to have that self-reflection time. I'm so glad you did. You have to do that. Otherwise, the tension between making ourselves vulnerable and protecting ourselves can be immobilizing. I'm delighted to hear that. I actually think, Melina, that might be something interesting. We figured out early on that people needed us to normalize. Posting to a discussion list is not academic writing. Just post your thought and let things evolve. And We sort of struggled with that and figured out some language on that. But now I'm wondering, Rebecca, do you think it would be helpful if we posted a little something about the benefit of being a lurker to just sort of normalize that and say, this is really emotional and it's deep and maybe you just want to slide through and focus on yourself and that's perfectly fine. Yeah, maybe we don't call it lurking, but really it's more like a journaling. Yes. Like a self-reflection kind of activity. Like I did a lot of the activities a first time just kind of in my notebook and was thinking through things. See, I think you've put your finger on one of the attributes of life in academia and higher ed that stymies this kind of work, which is we leap to action and we don't provide enough opportunity for ourselves to just do the kind of internal work we need to, to feel some sense of groundedness. What do I think? What have my experiences been? What has worked for me and what am I still working on kind of things? And to be quite honest, you would have been my favorite student. If that was what you got in round one, I would have been totally happy. But moving it into the campus or into a discussion with your colleagues, that for me is icing on the cake because you as a teacher will be transformed by that work. You'll never approach any of this stuff the same way again. I have a friend who's an internet scholar, so she actually researches lurking. I read a draft of an article that she wrote where she actually talked about the importance of lurking for learning about different others. Like basically it was making an argument that lurking is a really good way to learn how to be an ally, to learn about groups that you're not a member of, to learn what new vocabulary is out there in terms of how to talk about certain topics. I know there's a lot of anxiety about offending people and getting the terms right. And I'm at the point now where I'm likely to make mistakes because things have changed enough within my own lifetime that the vocabulary is constantly being updated. I think that anything we can do to reduce anxiety and help people feel more connected to each other, to the course, to have opportunities to just reflect on their own experiences. And you're not the only one who engaged with the course that way. Rebecca, the woman I talked to this morning, did the same. She posted, but she would only post at the end of reading every other person's reflections. And I'll say, just in case somebody goes to the course and says, well, where are the discussion boards? That was one of the things that we ended up giving up and moving to the self-paced modality. And that's because we couldn't staff moderators 24-7 
before we were able to have a robust and temporary staff in place that would help us moderate the discussion boards. We just know that sometimes there are bad actors who aren't there for learning. We never had trouble in our discussion boards. They were lovely. So that was such a difficult decision to make. But we revised the guide that we wrote for facilitators to just encourage thinking about and talking about alternative means to supplement those, whether it's a closed Facebook group or a discussion board in Canvas or leaving extra time during the face-to-face opportunities. But it sounds like in your structure, your face-to-face opportunities are giving people plenty of opportunity for discussion. Can you talk a little bit about how you facilitated at Cornell? Sure. I'd be delighted to. It's complicated because it's not the same every time. So just to give you a sense, I co-facilitated with another staff member from our center. We did a faculty interdisciplinary learning community. Same person with addition, two other staff, one person from the graduate school. We did the one for graduate students and postdocs together with a slightly different curriculum. I partnered with a faculty member from the School for Integrative Plant Sciences, and we anchored that one in the department this last time. This is like the story of my life. I used to team teach as a community college professor, but I was the one that had to be the team teacher with everybody. So every year I had two or three new teaching partners for the same course. So I'd be basically begging them to use my course syllabus so that we could have a little bit of sanity for me. So I love this because people have different facilitation styles. They bring different skills to the table. So it's very inspiring and they're very different. So the interdisciplinary faculty cohort is one kind of experience. The faculty there basically love hearing about similarities and differences. Like they're so relieved to find colleagues who care just as much as they do about inclusion. And they're delighted to hear about strategies that maybe they can try. And they're also relieved to share the naughty points of difficulty that others may not be facing that are discipline specific to them. And then in the cohorts that we've led that are anchored in the departments, those conversations are just as rich because you can focus on things that are important to that group. So in the School for Integrative Plant Sciences, we asked the chair to provide a scenario for a difficult conversation so that we could have a little practice around that. And they're remodeling their entranceway. So they're having these discussions about how to portray their discipline. And so the argument is about the history of the discipline and all the white male people versus wanting to diversify the discipline nowadays and what they want to do. So we had a pretty amazing sort of hot topics dialogue that I think left them feeling more empowered and more ready. And the person who's actually truly leading that initiative was also relieved to hear all the different opinions. And it was really important to hear the different perspectives. I don't know if that completely answers your question. I'm just right fresh out of doing those. So I kept a journal where I just kept writing down little ideas. Matt and I keep talking about writing a book about this. And I'm like, I want to make sure I write about this and write about that and write about this. So it was a deeply reflective process for me. I keep learning a tremendous amount. And sometimes, to go back to Matt's earlier comment, we're not going to change the readings, but sometimes we do go and make updates or add references. We weren't able to touch on every single identity category. And sometimes people don't find themselves and they say, why didn't you talk about this or that? And so then we make an effort to do that. And I have a running list of edits that are ready to be worked on for the next version of the course that gets posted. If I could tailgate, Melina, there are two points that you made that I just think are so evocative of our approach to this. One is we really wait to see who's registered and how they fall out. Are there cohorts? Are there natural cohorts that emerge from that? And that was your point, Melina, about it being complicated and sort of last minute because we sort of wait to see who's on board. And then your second point that I just want to reiterate is it's organic. And I think we're both learning both about the DEI issues, but also about teaching 
teaching and teaching in an online environment? And what does it mean to have a global perspective in a MOOC? This is new to both of us still. And so it's always really interesting. And we're trying to still, like Melina has revised the handbook for facilitators every single semester because we keep getting really good ideas from folks across the spectrum who have tried some things out and said this really worked and this didn't. And our goal always is to make it as useful as possible. So it also keeps it really interesting. So it's the same course, but it's never the same course. You know that you're both deeply embedded in teaching as well. Yeah, the discussions vary dramatically depending on the specific composition. And when we were meeting three times a week or four times a week, one time, each discussion was a little different depending on who happened to show up that day. And it worked well, though. I appreciated the fact that I got to participate in many of those discussions. In the ideal world, that's exactly what it would be. You would sort of have a flipped classroom. You would do the online course, but you would always have a cohort of people to talk through your ideas with. And I think that's, for me, the ideal scenario. And I have to ask, are you assessing this? Obviously, people being there is one key assessment. That's a huge vote of confidence. So clearly, you're doing really well. The fact that they come back, that's even better evidence. We have not done any formal assessments. We'd like to, but we're somewhat understaffed. We'd like to assess many more of the things that we're doing at the teaching center, and certainly the effectiveness of this would be useful. I wish we had a good answer for you on that. Actually, that's a really good answer, John, because it's sort of provoking me to think together with Melina. We've got the protocol that we use, the pre-post, and Melina and our other colleague, Amy Cardes, are working on publishing that protocol. But that might be something that if we can move that process along, that would give you something at the campus level easy to administer and really, really interesting. So it's all self-report, of course, but it at least gives you a sense of over time in general at an aggregated level, what are faculty finding useful about the experience in terms of their own learning and development? I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I did a presentation at the IUPUI conference, and as a result of that, have started collaborating with a couple of other institutions who are in particular interested in how to assess their inclusive teaching interventions. And so in one case, they started by wanting to use our protocol, but embed the protocol in the other part of their plan that they had in place. So we'll be presenting together as a team this year at IUPUI, which I'm excited about. And I also think that Assessing the learning communities is its own sticky wicket. The learning goals are both the same ones that are in the course, and you also want to know whether the learning community itself went as well as it could have or what you might do differently. Because I still have as a goal here locally at Cornell to have more of these department-level immersions because those are the ones that have been pretty exciting because colleagues suddenly see each other with new eyes. like They see their colleagues as co-agents for change and social justice work. Instead of having the experience in the interdisciplinary group that I mentioned where they're like, thank goodness there's someone over across campus who cares as much as I do. So part of assessment is being able to tell your story persuasively about what you're doing and why people should participate. I think also part of what assessment can do is reflect on what's next. What's the growth edge here? What would help people in the next step? And so as Melina said, departments are our big go-to next step. We're really interested in working with coherent 
subset of people. We'll never get an entire department and we don't need that. We don't need unanimity. We just need a core of consensus that this is a worthwhile use of their time. And what Melina hasn't mentioned, this is other projects she's working on with another colleague of ours that I think is super interesting, which is curriculum mapping through a DEI lens. And so really when we think about systemic change in building more multiculturally inclusive institutions, the department is really the unit of analysis. That's where the work happens. And it's also where the chief stakeholders stay the longest. And so provosts roll over, chancellors roll over, presidents come and go, but departments mostly stay intact. And so if they choose to invest in this sort of critical analyses of DEI issues, there's great possibility for really changing long-term the experiences of undergrads and grads, and also the people who are part of the department. It goes to recruitment and retention at every level, from undergrads to grad students to new and junior faculty. So we've been sort of building, socializing the course on campus, building a sense that this is a good use of your time globally. And then Melina has, how many departments have you worked with now? Four? Three? We have three on deck for the fall and had those initial conversations about getting things started and meeting them specifically where they are at in their process. People have expressed different beginning points or interests for where they want to get started. But this is with my colleague, Kathleen Landy, who's really helping us to visualize difficult concepts in a very simple way. She's basically created some tools that we can use to lead people through this process. And we're socializing. It might not be the right word, but we're basically getting the word out that this is a program and a service that we offer and having some initial conversations with folks to just let them know what this is, how the resource works. And so far, the reception has been really positive. And I think there's just a different set of needs. We sometimes just talk about different entry points. Maybe people want to think about curriculum. Maybe they really want to think about pedagogy. I met with a group today that really wanted to help getting a discussion started about social identities and implicit bias. And so that's really about instructor self-reflection and what our lived experiences have been and then how we translate those into our teaching practices. So one fantasy that I have is that our portfolio basically runs the gamut around that framework so that people who want to work on curriculum have a rich tool for curriculum mapping. And then they also get the benefit of the facilitated dialogue and deeper conversations. Yeah, I'm a big follower of the sort of John Dewey approach. Start where the learner wants to start. And in many cases, all roads lead to Rome. It doesn't really matter where we start if we have a holistic systems perspective. And the desire to start. Absolutely. That's the critical piece, exactly. (laughs) Which is an important threshold to cross over, the desire to start. People come to us because they want to, as opposed to this is now a university requirement or something like that, because that threshold is so important and meaningful. I think a lot of campuses have reached that threshold now because the pandemic, as Rebecca had mentioned earlier, has revealed a lot of the inequities and challenges that our students face in ways that were always there, but that faculty may not have been as fully aware of. It's much harder to ignore some of the challenges our students face when you had to deal with them in class every day when you could see them struggling with things that would be hidden when they were on campus. Many people are ready for addressing these issues and these challenges. I couldn't agree more. I think timing is everything. And our hope is to build a port of entry that's, like Melina mentioned very early on, we do everything we can to bring people's anxiety down so they can relax and be in a mode that allows learning to take place. If it's okay, I'd love to hear from the two of you about what would you like to see in teaching and learning in the diverse classroom? What would you see as a next step? 
We were thinking of maybe starting a podcast. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> we love your podcast. <laughs> yeah. That was one of those projects that started small that blew up big as well. <laughs> I do have an answer. One of the things that I think that we struggle with limited resources and also the complexity of timing is always a challenge, being able to bring people together at a specific time. So we offer things at multiple times. One of the things that we always have trouble measuring or reporting out is what do people do with this information? And so some of the pre and post testing that you were mentioning before, I think gets at that a little bit, but what's the reflection that happens a specific period of time afterwards is something that we haven't done yet. We haven't engaged. I think we both have this inclination to want to do some of that stuff, but like not always the capacity to do it. And then also we've tried a couple of things like badges if you want to tell your story. And sometimes it's hard to collect that information in a way that's useful that doesn't take ages for someone to produce to submit it to us and then also to like analyze it. That's a great point. We've bandied about this idea of sort of a retrospective survey, like a semester out, a year out, two years out, what remains important or salient or what have you done differently? And we're still, I think, in discussion. Is that the way to say it, Melina? We haven't really resolved yet how to do that. And for us, it's the same issue it's bandwidth. I appreciated the fact that Matt was writing down your idea, Rebecca, because sometimes it's a matter of timing, getting us at the right flow of the creative curve, and also the amount of times that we get the same ask. So somebody else had asked for more videos that had faculty talking about successful strategies and how to implement them. So we might be able to talk to your point and meet that person's invitation. And the other request that we've had, which we haven't had bandwidth for, was to present a wider variety of different types of institutions, especially in Module 5 when we're talking about institutional change efforts. So that was one idea. We would love to explore these if we had the capacity. On that issue, though, I do have to say that the people you chose to speak, I think, speak to all institutions. I think some people may have been concerned that this was coming out of Cornell and were for your public institution, but no one really left with any concerns about that. I think the issues that are addressed are pretty universal. I think that part works really well. One thing, though, that I know a number of faculty were looking for is more specific guidance on what techniques could work to make their discussions a little more inclusive in class and what other techniques could be used to help improve the success of students who are struggling. And there's so many things there that the issue gets really wide. And I think the topics you chose are really good and universal and apply to everyone. But I know a lot of people would like some things specifically that could help narrow some of the challenges in STEM classes where success rates vary very dramatically. And a lot of faculty were raising questions about that, particularly in math and in the sciences and so forth. There's a lot that's already there. There's just so much you can do in a five-week class. And I think what you have there is wonderful. What you're saying, John, actually makes me think about a need to send a reminder to people that have participated in a cohort about all the resources that were available there, because now you've had time and space to reflect, maybe have tried some things in classes, and it might be worth revisiting some of the material again. One thing that I wished we could do, which we just couldn't quite figure out a way to do this, but in the MOOC, we had people post what their action plans were 
on the discussion board. So now we've lost access to being able to see those. But the ones that we get through our Cornell cohorts are pretty incredible. And the quality of those jumps up significantly when we have a learning community, like the learning community action plans. I think John said this earlier, like it just helps people finish the course and actually get through it just to be part of a learning community. But then also the quality of the action plans, I think because they're presenting them to each other. Our last session in our learning community is them presenting their plan and then hearing their colleagues' questions and feedback. And those have been really impressive. And I like, John, what you're saying. I think people want to see some examples of this in action. Like sometimes I wish we could get sort of live footage of a classroom where someone's doing a really great job and have the camera be, people know it's there, but they can forget about it. Melina and I have talked at length about sort of what's missing in this experience is the experiential aspect. And there's a certain component in the dialogue, the discussion that you host or facilitate that helps with that. That's super helpful because even though you may not be having people do psychodrama or acting out role plays or stuff like that, but just the act of talking through these moments can be enormously helpful. But we've been really trying to think about how the next step might be something that's more experiential because oftentimes people just need literally the physicality of a practice, of a walkthrough. He says this, she says that, what do I do? Then something else gets said, then what do I do to that? And that sort of is part and parcel to building a sense of efficacy. Like you don't need to have all the answers, but you do need to have some strategies that you feel are useful in the moment and don't dig you into a deeper hole. So that's one of the other things. I don't have an answer for that yet, but we've been thinking. Our DEI officer, Rodman King, has ran sessions on our campus that are like that, like little scenarios and did small groups where people were talking through it. And those are some really popular sessions. They always needed more time. <laughs> People got really engaged and really wanted to talk through the details and really process. So we often didn't get through more than one or two examples in a session, but it was an incredibly popular session when we've offered those. Yeah, I love that idea. And people feel like there's an expert in the room who can help them. And it's theoretical. It's a scenario. So they can risk making a mistake. But the practice is real, that level of physicalities. It's a wonderful idea. Can I circle back to something John said earlier about the people being worried about the Cornell voices being like too Cornell or something like that? I think that the reason that that doesn't happen is because people were willing to make themselves vulnerable during the interview process. So they really come across as three-dimensional, complicated human beings who are willing to tell their stories of struggle and background. And I actually think that we have a situation at Cornell where the name of the institution itself basically has almost everybody suffering under some kind of horrible imposter <laughs> syndrome. <laughs> which makes us maybe nicer people. I don't know. But my experience here has been that my colleagues are incredibly kind and welcoming and eager to support their students learning. That always is shared among faculty everywhere. But they're also eager to support each other's learning in adult spaces. And that has continued to be a delightful point of engagement. I used to teach undergraduates and now all of my work is through our teaching center. And I really far prefer working with adults thinking about social identity in a different way, like maybe they arrived already. Oh, no, wait, there's new things to learn. <laughs> I think that authenticity really comes through, which is really powerful. And I think you're right. On camera, everyone feels really authentic. It doesn't feel scripted. And I think that's what's important about it. I totally agree, Rebecca. I'm really happy to hear that that's your perception. Obviously, we picked the people. And part of it also was people relished the invitation 
to be honest and to tell what their stories are as they are unfolding. And so I think, Melina, this is where you started, the power of the story. But it's also the power of inviting people to share their story, that indication that, yeah, we really want to hear it. And I do want to do a little bit of a shout out for Melina. She was our, I don't even know what to call her, executive producer. She was our talent manager. And so she did a lovely job of engaging everybody and getting them centered and made sure they had coffee or water. Just sort of genuinely set the stage for a real dialogue, much like you and John do in this podcast. You just make it really easy to be present and say what's on your mind. Thanks. Speaking of invitations, we always invite people to to tell us what's going to happen next. So what's next? (laughs) Next is action plans. Melina and I still have to wrap up the class, which is actually, even though it's July, it's our favorite part of the class. We love reading and responding. So we've chosen to do the responses to the action plans by brief recorded videos mostly because it warms up the classroom. And also we start talking about it. And I think our feedback is far more robust and we read for different things. So it's always so interesting to me to hear what resonated for Melina and why. And so I'm really looking forward to that. And then Melina. What's next? I want to do a deeper dive on the importance of storytelling. So this isn't next on our MOOC, but just on what we're thinking of offering next year through our Center to Support Inclusive Teaching. But just really enlivening and bringing to bear this idea that storytelling is an inclusive pedagogy, how to do it, when to do it, when it's appropriate. It goes back to John's question about how do you facilitate lively discussions? How do you bring in the personal and the individual when you're wrestling with difficult scholarly ideas? Sometimes we get folks from STEM saying, oh, this is social sciences, like the humanities and social sciences should deal with this. So making it relevant, making a case for why, who we are as people really matters to the way we learn, how we learn, how we feel in the classroom about affect. So we have a few projects related to that new avenue. And there was also a brief mention of the possibility of a book. Is that something planned in the near term or is this a longer time horizon project? Well, we have an outline. I think that's a start. Yes, it's a big start. We have the will and we have the way. We just now need to do the work. But I think we could help people. I think we have some things to say about how campuses can galvanize around teaching and learning inclusively as a modality for systemic change. People want to, like you were saying earlier, John, there's a great interest in these issues now. The salience is higher than it's ever been before. People, I think, are just not really sure how to get started. And I think that the Teaching and Learning in the Diverse Classroom course tries to break it down and say there are multiple points of entry, any one of which is useful. We could sort of do that at the department level. Teaching in a course is one point of entry, but also curriculum mapping and sort of the other things that we do with folks could work as well. I love the idea of the ports of entry. Thank you. It's great talking to you again. And next time, I do hope we can get together and have some tea in person, either on our campus or on yours or at some conference somewhere. I would love that. And good luck to everybody who's still teaching. Thank you all so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.